We are in the Gospel of Luke, still in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Luke 15, 1 through 10. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it, When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, all of us, have had an experience like the one which is described in the parable um, that I've just, the, the two parables I've just read. All of us have had an experience of losing something dearly precious and searching, frantically searching, feverishly searching everywhere, right? High, low, up, down, um, everywhere until that, that dearly precious person or object is finally found. Um, and I, I just ask you, sermons are supposed to be a little bit interactive, so why don't we, why don't we try and be interactive this morning? Where, um, what was your, what was your uh, moment? Or what was your memory of, of that? Can you think of the time when, um, when you search feverishly for something which was lost? You know, one of the most poignant memories that Aaron and I have, it was about you know, 15 years ago, we were in seminary, and she was in the seminary library, and by chance, she just looks down at her, uh, her engagement ring and realizes one of the prongs of the ring has been bent, and her diamond is missing. And, I mean, we had been married for about two years at this time. We were married in college, and I had saved up what little we had to, to buy this diamond engagement ring, you know, 700 bucks was a lot back in those days, and, and so like any, any wife who's missing her diamond, she, she starts looking frantically everywhere and trying to retrace her steps. Where was it that I was last at? Could it be in the car? Could it, you know, for weeks, she searches everywhere, high, low, left, and right, all throughout the apartment, nothing. It's not able to find the diamond. Well, one of our friends, our best friends in seminary, was a couple from Northern Ireland, and they had a daughter whose name was Hannah, is Hannah, great name, <laughs> and Hannah was, was just tirelessly, relentlessly praying 
that Miss Erin would find her diamond. Well, as you can guess how the story went, I don't know, it was a week or so later, two weeks later, she walks into the closet, and there's the diamond sitting in, in plain sight. I mean, almost as if an angel had just picked it up and laid it in the middle of the floor, and, you know, voila. So what's your story? What's your memory? Never forget when Jasper the Beagle ran away from the house. You know, you probably have had a similar instance where you lose a dog. When we first moved into our house, we didn't have enough money to, to you know, pay for a fence. So whenever Jasper went outside, he had to be on a tether. And beagles, they just follow their noses. Wherever the wind blows, whatever scent they can pick up, that's where they're going to be going. So there were a couple of times where Jasper ran off and... I remember, I can remember it, as, as, see it as clearly as I can see you in front of me. Jasper, after driving around the neighborhood with the kids in the back seat, all crying, you know, and the windows rolled down, Jasper, or um, Jasper, you know, for the little ones, and phew, there he goes, right across the street, right in the park, and I, yeah, I, I just wanted to kill that beagle, <laughs> that blessed beagle. So, what's your memory? Do you have it? You know, I don't want to belabor the point. How did it feel? Like, what words would you use to describe that moment when you found the thing that you were looking for? I mean, what were, what were those emotions? Were they, um, were they just overwhelming joy? Were they eu- euphoric ecstasy. Maybe there was a great sense of relief, like a piano had been lifted off of your back. Maybe there was anger. Have you ever lost a child in an apartment store before? We lost one at Walmart. You know, the sense of anger of, how could you ever run away? And then just the sense, uh, this overwhelming I don't even know how best to describe it. I'm a man. I'm not in touch with my emotions very well. But just the sense of, you know, Joy beyond expression. And what these two parables do is, is they tell us, you know, by way of analogy, this is how God feels. This is how God feels when he finds lost people. I mean, if you can just enter back into that moment and experience it, this is how what we should understand his heart to be like. Um, and that just that overwhelming sense of, yes, thank you, God, thank you, is, is something of what God experiences when a lost person is found. So we are in, this morning, one of the best loved passages in all the Bible, Luke chapter 15. And it has what we have, what are called the, the three parables of lostness. There are three stories here of a lost sheep, of a lost coin, and then the third parable, which we're not covering this morning, but I am going to cover tonight in junior high and senior high school group, is the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son, or the, the lost sons, because there's actually two lost sons. But the similarities of these parables are pretty obvious. In each one, somebody loses something, then they get it back, and then at the end, there's this note of festive celebration, calling on everyone to rejoice 
when the lost thing is found. And I, I believe, brothers and sisters, that if you, you, really, you, you really understand that this is the heart of God, then it will change the way you look at him. And it will also change the way that you think about your lost sheep, your lost friends and uh, family members and co-workers who have strayed away from the fold. It gives us tremendous encouragement. So here's where we're going to go. I have uh, five short observations. I know that sounds like a lot, but they're short observations on the parables. And then two simple applications of the parables. So we've got seven things to cover, but they're short and simple and hopefully sweet. So number one. Right off the bat, the parables tell us something important about human beings. Namely, that human beings are catastrophically lost. It's certainly not a flattering way to characterize humanity and the 7 billion people on on the planet. But it's true. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. And Christianity is the religion of the lost. For most church-growing people, I know that's that's not um, an aha moment. It's it's a a duh moment, of course. But you you probably underestimate how many people out there spend their whole lives thinking the exact opposite. They think that Christianity is for the good people and for the upright people. No, it's not. It's, It's for the bad people. It really is for the lost sheep who cannot find their way back into the fold, or the lost coins which cannot jump back into the woman's purse, the lost sons who run away to the far country and squander their father's money, and also the lost sons who don't run away at all, but they're so self-righteous, they don't see their own need for grace. The, the The qualification for becoming a Christian has never been, are you good enough? It has always been, are you lost enough? Are you bad enough? After all, it is only the lost things which get found. That's number one. Number two, in both of these parables, God loses something, misses something, misses something dearly and desperately, which on the surface seems insignificant in value. He misses something that seems, I mean, it's only one sheep out of a hundred, right? That's 1% of the fold. It's not a whole lot, but nevertheless, that 1% is something that he dearly, dearly misses, and he will leave the 99 behind in order to go find the one. In the same way, Luke tells us that the coin the woman lost was a Roman denarius, In their day, a denarius was the equivalent of uh, a day's wages. So she loses one day's wage out of 365 days' wages. I mean, would we miss one day's pay pay out of our paycheck? Yeah, it's not insignificant, but it's also not large. And yet, this woman misses it so dearly, she calls all of her friends together afterwards to throw a party and rejoice that it's found. And in the same way, even though you and I are nothing but dust, insignificant dust, that's what the astrophysicists tell us. You know, that, 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 we, that the universe that we see is, 
is largely composed of nothing but stardust, the, the dust of dying stars. And yet, even though we are nothing but dust, the creator of the universe misses every one of his lost ones deeply and wants every one of his lost ones to return to him. I mean, that God would miss us, though we are but dust. That's a, uh, that's a profoundly amazing thing. Number three, what is God like? Jesus says, God, Jesus says that God is like a shepherd who journeys into the darkness, looking for the lost sheep until he finds it. Or God is like a woman who loses her coin, lights a lamp, sweeps the house, and diligently seeks to find it. God seeks out the lost because, and here's the money quote, because he seeks out the lost because it is completely unacceptable to me that they should remain lost. That's the point. It is unacceptable to God. He's like, I will not lose this one. I will not let it stay lost. It is it is though it is though God has a certain weakness of love for those things which are the furthest away from him. He goes in search of them. And how does he search for them? He searches to the very end. That's the he searches to the very end. The shepherd will not give up until he finds the sheep. The, the woman will not give up until she... The shepherd heads out into the hills, and he scours the hills. He's walking on the hills for days, maybe, calling out, calling the names of, of his lost sheep, and he will not be denied. He, the lady turns her house upside down. She's crawling around on her hands and knees. She will not rest. She will not be denied. They, this is a picture of relentlessness, which will not give up until the lost is found. Number four. It's kind of fun to do this thought experiment. Compare losing a sheep to losing a dog. <laughs> um, if your dog runs away, Jasper the Beagle runs away, uh, when you find your dog, normally your, jo- your dog is going to jump up and lick you in the face and be very, very happy that, hey, it's my master, it's you. And, um, and with your dog, you're, it's going to maybe... If it's fairly compliant, follow you on all your way home. If it's a really high-energy dog, you put a leash on it, and that dog's going to drag you uh, all the way back home. The idea being that if you, you get a dog and you sort of point them in the right direction, you're going to be headed back. But sheep are not that way. <laughs> As Jesus says in this parable, the job of the shepherd is not done when he finds the animal. What does he do? What does Jesus say he does? He, he throws the sheep onto the ground tenderly, and he ties up the sheep, and then he throws the sheep over his shoulders. He says, sheep have to be thrown over the shoulders of the shepherd because it won't be- walk back on its own. Uh, you know what this means, of course. It means that the nursery rhyme you and I learned is a lie. <laughs> Little Bo Peep has lost her sheep and doesn't know where to find them. Leave them alone, and they'll come home, wagging their tails behind them. Jesus says, it's all lies. <laughs> the shepherd has to carry them all the way back home. What a great picture of salvation. Uh, one of the most precious pictures of the salvation, all the Bible, the idea that the sheep, a sheep contributes absolutely nothing to its own salvation. You know, a, a sheep can contribute 
nothing. It has to be carried all the way home by the shepherd. Or a coin for that matter. Both sheep and coins have to be saved. Sola gratia. By grace alone. By sheer and utter and complete grace. Number five. Uh, The last thing I want to point out as a way of observations is look at the angels in this passage. Because they show up a couple of times. Now, we know that angels are not, they're not pre-existent beings. I mean, at one point in time, we don't know when, but a long time ago, angels were created. Angels have been around for a little while, and angels have seen an awful lot. Remember, it was the angels who were there in the beginning and saw Satan fall. It was the angels who saw the, the great revolt take place in heaven, and we think that Demons that exist on earth today were likely fallen angels who were cast to earth as their punishment. Angels have seen a lot. The Apostle Paul says one of the the biggest fascinations of the angels is that they, they long to look into the mysteries of God, by which Paul means the mysteries of God's salvation. The angels long to look into this whole crazy thing of the way God goes about saving human beings. And here the Bible tells us, when they see it happen, how they react. When the angels see a lost person get rescued, they explode in joy. When sheep are found, they throw a party in heaven. There's a party going on in heaven right now. All the time. Basically, the the world, there's two halves of God's creation. There's the visible and the invisible. The seen and the unseen. Heaven and earth. And the way God originally designed it is that the two would fit in harmony together. That's what we incidentally are praying in the Lord's Prayer. When we say, thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The idea being is whatever you see going on in heaven... Well, that's how things ought to be down here on earth. Well, what's going on in heaven right now? (laughs) The angels are having a party. And so when you're praying that God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven, when you discover there's a party going on in heaven, that should be happening in churches too. If churches are outposts of heaven on earth, that's, boy, that needs to be characterizing um, All Saints Presbyterian Church, doesn't it? Here's a psychological or sociological experiment. I want you to try this. I want you to observe this. The next time you're in a group of people and the whole group starts to laugh, there is an instinctive reaction for every single human being when uh, you're in a group of people and people start to laugh. There is an instinctual um, movement of the head where you start and you look at the person laughing with you. It always happens. You look at them, they look at you, and you share this, 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 this recognition that together we are in joy. Together we are both connecting in joy. Watch the next time somebody's laughing. Just You do it. You can't even help it. It's amazing. Well, that's what's happening in heaven right now. The angels are... are instinctively looking at each other, laughing and shouting together. And if churches are outposts on earth, of heaven on earth, we need to be celebrating together too when lost people come home. We need infectious joy on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? Okay, those are my 
five observations, and now we move on to my two simple points of uh, application. I know it's terrible preaching technique to uh, give people a list of here's five things and here's two more things, but bear with me. I was on vacation last week, so that's my excuse. Number one, application. What I want you to do is look at the setting of the story. Where is Jesus? What is he doing and where is he when he's telling these parables? It's in verses one and two. He is, uh, he is sharing a meal with tax collectors and sinners. Do you realize that most of us are not accused of sharing meals with tax collectors and sinners? <laughs> like most of us, we don't get, people are not criticizing us for, you know, you're spending too much time with the uh, tax collectors and sinners of the world. Now, tax collectors and sinners in their day, that was a political hot potato. Because the tax collectors had kind of thrown themselves into supporting the oppressive Roman Empire, um, basically to be associated with tax collectors, they, this is interesting, I never knew this, but they, will, they actually read the names of tax collectors aloud in the local synagogue as a way to, to tell you and remind you, don't associate with them. You know, those are the guys who are excommunicated from the synagogue. And here is Jesus Christ sharing a meal with tax collectors and, uh, and, uh, and sinners. And it's kind of a, it's a guilt by association. It gives the impression that I approve of you. And that's why the Pharisees grumble. He's a friend of sinners. Are we friends of sinners? Would somebody um, get upset about us <laughs> because we were having one too many tax collectors and sinners over for a backyard barbecue? How many tax collectors and sinners are in your Google contacts? How many of them are, are in your address books? Now, I know um, the fact that Jesus would a friend for sinners, um, sometimes that gets twisted in our circles uh, Sometimes, well, if Jesus is the friend of sinners, that means that, you know, it's no problem with me going and doing whatever sinners are doing. I mean, I've heard Jesus, what a friend for sinners, used to, to twist the idea into, oh, it's okay if I go to the club and I go to the bar and I'm dirty dancing. I've heard it even said it's okay if I go to the strip joint because as long as I'm the Christian witness there among my non-Christian friends, you know, as long as I'm the designated driver and the Christian presence in the group, no. How is Jesus a friend to sinners in this way? He befriends them in order to lead them unto repentance. Isn't that the theme? Doesn't that get repeated a couple of times here? The Holy One of Heaven comes down to earth and befriends the unholy sinners, not to yuck it up in their sin together, but in hopes of leading them into the green pastures of true repentance and true life, that's, that's what we're supposed to be about. Make no mistake of it. If Jesus' mission is to seek and save the lost, that must be the church's mission. And the thing is, guys, if we do this instinctively, if we truly value the thing, okay, that's an obscure way of saying it. How many of us have lost our wallet before? Think of the panic that ensues when you realize 
that a couple hours later, you left the restaurant and you don't have your wallet before. You're like, should I, do I need to call and cancel my credit cards? Let's go back to the place. Let's interview every waitress there. Let's look high and low. When we, when we lose our wallet, or how many of us have lost our iPhones before? $500 down the drain. I mean, we're, we're retracing our steps. We're doing everything we can. You know, pull out the Find My iPhone app and, and search for it. We will pursue a lost iPhone. We will pursue a lost wallet. Should we not have the same longing for lost people? That's what this says. Should we not have the same longing for lost people? Of course. Now, I'm not saying, uh, I'm not trying to wag my finger at you and shame you because you're not not sharing your faith enough with your non-Christian friends and, and relatives. I know that many of you are. And I'm not even saying that evangelism uh, ought to be the number one grade A priority in your life. There are a lot of things we need to prioritize. Um, you know, Jesus didn't have a wife and kids. He didn't have those responsibilities. I'm not saying that every, stop everything that you do and make evangelism of tax collectors and sinners the very top of your list. But shouldn't it be in your top ten? Shouldn't cultivating friendships with people who are um, almost like dangerous for us to associate with, shouldn't that be in your top 10? Secondly, my last point of application. I'm reading this parable. I couldn't help but uh, think of immediately the lost sheep of friends who used to be Christians and who have wandered away from the faith, children who used to be Christians and have wandered. I mean, as a pastor, you might, you can imagine, I've seen that happen many, many times. And recall right now their names. Think in your head, some people whom you really love and who used to love God themselves, but for whatever reason, they are drawn away. I think this, these parables, the three parables of lostness, ought to give us tremendous encouragement to keep on praying for them because Jesus tells us there is a shepherd devotedly searching. God is a shepherd who is devotedly searching. Uh, Kids are not very good at searching. I have learned this as a, as a father, and most of your mo- you mothers, you especially know, when the kids lose the jacket at school, I mean, it, moms are on top of it. You got you to look here and look there, and you know, how many of you parents can relate to the conversation? You probably had dozens of these. Dad, I lost my Kindle. Can you help me find my Kindle? Okay, son. So where'd you look for it? I looked all over, Dad, everywhere. Well, it must have taken you a long time to look everywhere. <laughs> Where was that? <laughs> I looked in my room and I can't find it, Dad. Did you look anywhere else? No, but I, I can't find it. Will you help me find it? Dad walks down the stairs. There's the Kindle sitting on the middle cushion, dead center of the couch. Kids are not very good at finding things. <laughs> and God is not a kid. God searches for lost things. Like a mother searches for lost things. These parables accurately describe to us God's heart. They speak to us of his grief. They speak to us of how much he misses and how much 
he values and how happy he is. These parables give us the greatest encouragement that can be found to tell us keep on praying. Keep on praying. I'll close with this. It's a quote from it's a quote from William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. And I think he's, he spoke this at a seminary or in some setting where he was talking to young seminary students or graduates. He said that if he could have his wish, part of the final training for preachers and evangelists before they would ever graduate from seminary is that, quote, he would have them hung over the open fires of hell for 24 hours so that those sharing the gospel message would recognize the urgency of it. That would impress upon us the urgency of of lostness, would it not? Um, Yeah, it would give us a much stronger sense of the torments of hell would show us the urgent need for evangelism. I suspect that's true. But Jesus Christ gives us a much sweeter picture, doesn't he? He says, If only you and I were hung over the courts of heaven for just 24 minutes. If only you and I were hung over the courts of heaven for just 60 seconds. And we could hear and see the jubilation of heaven for that one minute. To hear the voice of the heavenly father say to the sons and say to the the angels, rejoice with me. My lost sheep has been found. Rejoice. Rejoice. My lost coin has been found. If we got to spend 60 seconds like that, then um, we would pray differently. We would pray with far more confidence. We would seek the lost um, much more diligently, uh, hearing the celebration of heaven. God make it so. Amen.